Welcome to this breast cancer issue of Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered a dozen community-based medical oncologists to present real but de-identified cases from their practices to our faculty of Dr. Melody Coblay, Frankie Holmes, Andy Seidman, and Lee Schwartzberg. To begin, Dr. Bonnie Gerhardt presents a 49-year-old woman with an ERPR-negative HER2-positive tumor. She has a past medical history, which includes insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. She's 5'4 and weighs 330 pounds. She presented with a palpable mass, and just to cut to the chase, she had a T2N0 breast cancer, 3.3 centimeters high grade. It had a sentinel lymph node that was N0 but I1, so it had a few scattered single cells and actually a few very small clusters that were seen just on permanent section H&E, but the largest cluster still measured less than 0.2 centimeters. The tumor was ERPR negative and HER2 positive. Her metastatic workup was negative. It's interesting historically when you think about people in the adjuvant setting. So she was diagnosed in 206. So she was kind of between the first BCRG had been presented, I think, but the second one hadn't been presented, right, in 206. It's interesting how, depending on when people are diagnosed in the last few years. And so what did she end up getting treated with? So even though she was lymph node negative, I still treated her with a taxane. In February, she started with AC times four in a dose-dense fashion. Her baseline ejection fraction was 64%. At the conclusion of the AC, she has another ejection fraction, and that is 53%. She continues on taxol Herceptin on a Q2-week basis, and... She completes that, and actually during her second single-agent maintenance Herceptin, she gets another ejection fraction at 51%. After six Herceptins, about six months into therapy, she gets another ejection fraction, and it has dropped to 39%, and there's a mention on her MUGA scan that she now has global hypokinesis. She is asymptomatic at this time, and I stop her Herceptin. I follow her, and two months later, I get another MUGA scan, and her ejection fraction has come up to 53%, and they specifically note that the hypokinesis seen on the previous has now resolved, and I elect to restart the Herceptin. We continue now 10 or 11 months into her therapy, and I repeat an ejection fraction, and it has dropped once again from 53 to 47, and I stop once again. And so where is she right now? Now it's 2007, so she's been off now Herceptin for five months, and she continues without any evidence of disease and doing well. She had a lumpectomy, and so she got radiated. So during this entire period, did she ever have any symptoms suggesting heart failure? No, completely asymptomatic. And was she seen by a cardiologist? Yes. What did that person think? I think that they were somewhat passive and they somewhat deferred to me in terms of how important this medicine was and how it weighs against the cardiac issues. We had hoped that because this was unlike anthracycline cardiotoxicity, that perhaps she would regain. But I didn't have much data in terms of rechallenging her. How important are these last few months going to be and what's going to happen to her ejection fraction? So the first time, how long did she get the Herceptin? She was on it for six months when we stopped. And then the second time? Two months. 
So she has had a total duration of about yeah. eight months. And you actually, yeah. I think, were part of the cardiac thing we did in New York, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, we actually did a three-and-a-half-hour audio program just about breast cancer in the heart. And amazing that we've gotten to that point. And Bonnie was one of the people presenting cases to Hal Burstein and Dennis Sleeman and Rich Steingart, the cardiologist from Memorial. And it was, you know, it's amazing that we're so far into this. Melody, can you comment on this clinical course? Well, she certainly had risk factors for cardiac dysfunction with diabetes, hypertension, and hypercholesterolemia and obesity. And now we're in a little bit better place in terms of picking the regimen that we would pick, but we certainly weren't there when you met this patient. For a patient who has a T2 tumor that's HER2 positive, she certainly is at very high risk for harm or recurrence from her breast cancer. And I would have to agree with the regimen that you chose. I think that you're done. Would you have restarted her her trastuzumab? When her ejection fraction went back up again, I would agree with that. If she had been under a sonometer, would you have used trastuzumab? And if this had happened, would you have restarted it again? In other words, does the risk affect how hard you push in terms of total number of doses? With under a centimeter, I think I would have thought a little bit harder about doing AC followed by TH. And can you comment also on the, you mentioned that now we're in a little bit better position to identify people who are going to have problems. There was just a presentation of the NSABP that we've talked about, but I'm curious what your take was on the formula that was presented and the data and how you have incorporated into your practice. For HER2-positive tumors, the change that I've made is that I don't use ACTH anymore. I simply use TCH because it's a much safer regimen. And so the formula that was presented by the NSABP sort of does not compute in my practice any longer. Wow, interesting. I guess there's been a mixed response to the new BCRIG data that was presented in 2006, but you just kind of like, I would call you the John Mackey response, which is, boom, that's it, done with anthracyclines. How about you, Frankie? I agree fully with what you did. The one thing that I have learned, having had two patients now who've had anthracycline-only related congestive heart failure in the recent past is that I'm going to learn to be more proactive in pushing my cardiologist to start ACE inhibitors. One of the things that we learned from Sharon Hunt at ASCO, it just recapitulates what we've already learned about the aromatase inhibitors in my mind, and that is most of the patients don't understand. We are pulling these patients off the cliff from falling into the fire. And sometimes we put them right to the edge of the fire and we have to hold on by their ankles. So these other internists and all, they're not as invested in these people as we are because we've brought them almost to death to save them so they can have a long life. So this lady, as soon as we see her, we're now understanding the ravages that obesity have on this heart. So her cardiac reserve was already taxed. She's young. So she's living on the edge, so to speak, of her cardiac reserve. And even though the Herceptin is a reversible cardiac toxicity. Unfortunately, her hypertension and her obesity used up a lot of her reserve up front. We gave her the anthracycline. We used up a little more. And then we gave her the Herceptin, and that just took her down, but only temporarily. In the BCIRG trial, in which we participated also, we had the stipulation built in that if they recovered, then they could go back on the trastuzumab. And I would have done exactly as you had done, except that, again, we're having to educate our cardiologists. These people need ACE inhibitors as early as possible, and maybe even prophylactically up front. Although I agree 100%, I am using far less anthracycline than ever before. And I think TCH is a great regimen. But you're still using it. 
anthracyclines? Yeah, I do have some patients. What kind of situation would you use an anthracycline? Oh, with the Herceptin-based? Mm-hmm. Oh, our neoadjuvants. I want to start, TCH isn't yet an accepted neoadjuvant, but Dr. Boostar's regimen is, and so they're neoadjuvants. I do give the effects of it. What about adjuvant? As much as possible, I try not to give them. I try and give TCH. I'm curious, Melody, what your take is on how people have responded to the BCRG data. I actually think, at least in the investigator community, I think, I mean, things are changing pretty quickly, but they're still mainly actually wedded to anthracyclines. The idea there's more data, I feel more comfortable, this is a life-threatening disease, et cetera, et cetera. There are other people like you too, and like I say, John Mackey, Dennis Slayman is like, that's it, we're done. Can you talk a little bit about what do you think is going on with the people who are in this debate in terms of how people see these data? I think that old habits die hard, and people often like to see a confirmatory trial. There's not going to be a confirmatory trial where there's a no Herceptin arm anymore, so you basically have to make the decision, do you take the leap or not? And since the only trial we have shows that there's equivalence with a non-anthracycline versus an anthracycline-containing regimen, and since there's more cardiac toxicity and, as in this case, less Herceptin being able to be given to people who've had a previous anthracycline, to me, it's just a slam dunk. I guess the other issue is people who don't even get the Herceptin because they have a drop in attraction fraction from the anthracycline. Well, I just have a practical dosing question. Since this lady was so obese, I imagine she might have gotten a very stiff dose of anthracycline and Herceptin. So, and I would also like to ask the panel, so did you dose her to straight body surface area or did you manipulate it like we I often think do? Now I'd be much braver because there is data that says if your BSA is 2.2, you should be treated as a 2.2. Once you hit 350 pounds, I have concerns that that rationale sort of has fallen off. And so she did not get treated with her true BSA. I try and find some place. If you landed a 2.3 and maybe not a 2, maybe a 2.1, 2.2, Frankie, how do you approach that issue in general? We use the actual BSA. And the only other thing I would say, again, as we take responsibility for these patients, I get all my patients to bariatric surgery. I mean, this lady needs to know that two things are trying to kill her. One is her breast cancer, which you've probably saved her from. And the second is her cardiovascular risk, because heart is still number one. Well, she's, I'm actually very proud of Sharon, because we did do that. And I don't always, but I got it right with her, and she's already lost 30 pounds. And I'm, I'm really, I'm very proud of Sharon. How did she do it? We have a nutritionist, and then we have a breast cancer survivor who runs in my office at night. It's salsa, really, but it's dancing to lose weight, and she does salsa and meets with my nutritionist. So has she changed her exercise status? Did she not exercise before, or was she exercising? No, she actually owns a beach house, and she kind of just sits out on the beach, and now she's doing walking on the boardwalk and down on the beach, like sand walking. And she lost 30 pounds. Yeah. I'm curious, are you right now advising your breast cancer patients, any of your breast cancer patients, maybe ER negative more, I don't know, in terms of lowering dietary fat and exercise to try to reduce the recurrence rate, a la the WIND study? You know, I'm not specifically. I mean, I'm aware of the nurses' study. They go to our, we have a very active nutritional kind of supplement exercise referral pattern, but I don't specifically target 
dietary fat and dropping your body mass. Not to get too far off the topic, but I'm curious from our two faculty members what they think about that data, and is that enough to talk to patients about it? Frankie? I think it is absolutely on target. You know, we know the molecular mechanisms, the insulin-like growth factor receptor levels, so there's a lot that goes on, and absolutely. I tell my patients, if you had an ER-positive tumor and I gave you tamoxifen, losing weight and exercising, you'll get the same effect from it. So I push hard with all my overweight patients. How do you find people do? Because I was talking to George Sledge about this. He says in Indiana, these, his patients, they try, but they just can't achieve anything. How do the patients actually do? Are they able to modify their diets? Mm, I think my success hasn't been great, but I did have one lady who came in who had lost 50 pounds. Unfortunately, she had recurred at the time she came in. It was a small area of recurrence, so it wasn't that sort of thing. But Yes, there is some uptake, but the other thing is we keep pushing, and I have found a dietitian in the community that I can refer people to. Melody, your take on this? Are you advising patients about it? Are you talking about reducing recurrence rate? I am, and the thing that's nice about that information is that patients are always asking, what can I do? And we finally have something that they can do. Unfortunately, my success rate is not all that great. Really? You know, because I'm surprised you would think people, I mean, they're taking chemotherapy to reduce recurrence rate, that somehow they'd be able to sort of burst through the challenges of dealing with food. And yet I'm starting to hear that. Lowell, I see you shaking your yeah, head. Yeah, I think too. the same thing. I think, you know, it's going to be one of the problems in the shrinking reimbursement environment, too. There's not going to be excess funds and practices for these sort of unfunded things that you're not going to be able to get reimbursed for. Do you think patients, for example, breast cancer patients, will be motivated to try when they hear about this? I think if it's done in the right way, I mean, I think in Soblowski's thing, that was very intensive counseling and phone, and they had a lot of funding to do that. I'm not sure that that's translatable exactly to the private practice setting. Well, actually, you know, we actually had Rowan on a patient ed audio talking about this. And in fact, actually, it was eight dietitian visits with a total cost of about $1,000 a current. It's not nothing, but that's what they actually did. And if you actually ask what they work on, I mean, it's pretty moderate. I mean, it's lowering fat. It's not like a super, like a prickin', you know, super, no, this is doable, you know, I think. Bonnie? What I find helpful, at least in my patients, is I don't push so hard during the chemo, but we have a visit at the end, and the focus of that visit is, okay, We're done with the chemo. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about your libido. Let's talk about your sleep patterns. Are you taking time for yourself? Because we know that women are very often the caregivers and they have full-time jobs. And in that visit, we can do the weight reduction and the body fat. But if you set one visit, say we're going to talk about vaginal dryness and your insomnia and time for yourself and your marriage. And and in there is your colonoscopy, your pap smears, your cholesterol, your body density. But making it a very defined visit gives it validity and it gives them a lot of motivation. Could you comment on the use of the ACE inhibitors and when to use them in these situations? Because I've not done that prophylactically. I'm on the learning curve right now with okay, that. Because I've read some of that data, but I don't know what people are doing in practical terms. Since Dr. Hunt, and since I've experienced what you have also, I mean, you know, some of those internists, you know, they're not getting their Pneumovax, they're not getting their lipids checked and they're on AIs, and they're not getting their bone densities, and they're not checking their vitamin D25 hydroxies. Right. And I know that's important for this lady. I've saved her from breast cancer, and I sure as heck don't want her to die of a preventable illness. So why not order it yourself? I mean, I think as an internist in community practice, this is what I do. You know, you talk to your cardiologist, you may refer, but they are sent to us as a consultant as our patient. Now, there may be economic issues where you send back to the family practitioner and the internist because then you may not get another patient because of the referral pattern and insurance policies. But for the most part, I don't treat a disease. 
I treat the patient. And if the patient is having issues with cardiology or something else, you can talk, you make referral, but if they're not doing something, it's not up to the internist or the family practitioner to do it. It's for us to do it because we're taking care of the patient. They're always our patient. And I don't pick up a telephone and say, you know, your glucose is 135. What do you want to do? I mean, the fact of the matter is that these are issues. Now, if they're under an endocrinologist issues and you're dealing with end-stage disease, or not end-stage, but preventing, because she's insulin-dependent, that's one thing. Do you send it to a cardiologist just to check out, see if there's a valve problem or something like that, if you see a drop in ejection fraction? If I saw a muggle scan at 64%, she's getting an echo to make sure there's not mitral valve prolapse, because I'm worrying about a false positive elevation. I would just want to say one thing, that many of the insurance companies will not accept the fact that a specialist, an oncologist, is treating a patient for their hyperlipidemias, etc. I don't let them go untreated. I don't mean that. But I'm a specialist. My job is to stay on the cutting edge of breast cancer. And I'm not on the cutting edge of lipid research or the other. I will learn that. And I know all about vitamin D and bone density. But these patients have family doctors. I am not their family doctor. I am the breast cancer doctor. Rich? So Frankie, are you putting these people on ACE inhibitors with an anthracycline routinely or... Well, first off, I'm limiting the use of anthracyclines right. in my clinic. and Which we all are, I think. This is just since ASCO. I'm still right. trying to formulate what my approach is, except that I'm getting more and more of the patients to the cardiologist, and especially patients like this right. who are, high risk. have high cardiac risk factors. Thank you. Alan? Getting back to the TCH versus A, because I think it's an important issue, just how we're supposed to analyze these trials. The BCRG trial, it hasn't been published, is that right? It has not been published, not even presented at ASCO. Basically, we've got a slide flashed up on a screen in San Antonio, and we're supposed to change practice nationally based upon one point in a data curve in a trial which has not even been published. Is that really... That's your decision. Well, is it... A, is it are you still using... You're using anthracycline? I am, but perhaps I'm wrong. Melody, I wonder if you could, like, argue this out a little bit more. Well, I think we saw the same thing when the intergroup and the B31 trial were presented at ASCO. Practice changed immediately. And so I don't really see this as any different. We're not talking about some fly-by-night group or some investigators that aren't well-respected. But people were doing bone marrow transplants based upon relatively little data. How much data do we need? And how much should the data be vetted before we're ready to say we should make this a practice we recommend to others? I'm going to say that, you know, we know right now that not everybody sees this the same way. You just happen to have two people who feel this way. And actually, I don't think they even represent the majority. So clearly, both points of view are supported at this instant. Before going to the next case, we attempted a bit of an educational experiment. Our CME group has been doing national patterns of care studies for many years in a variety of tumor types, and I thought it'd be interesting to try what we might call an instant patterns of care survey by just quickly going around our Meet the Professors table and obtaining some off-the-cuff answers to some common vexing questions. As a follow-up to our adjuvant HER2 discussion, I asked the community docs and then the faculty this question. Overall in your practices, about what fraction of patients with HER2-positive node-negative tumors under a centimeter and between 1 and 2 centimeters end up receiving trastuzumab? Here are the answers. For under a centimeter, probably about less than half. And over a centimeter, I would say most. Under a centimeter, about 50%, and for 1 to 2, close to 100%. For lymph node negative disease with less than a centimeter, about 25, I would say, percent, and for 1 to 2, probably 75%. 
under one centimeter, I would say more like 25%. And more than one centimeter, I would say about more than like 75% of my patients will get. Under a centimeter, about 50%, and over a centimeter, probably about 85 to 90%. Less than a centimeter, maybe 10%. One to two centimeter, probably 85 to 90%. Under a centimeter, about 50-50, and one to two centimeters, probably around 90% when they get Herceptin. Under a centimeter, probably about 50%. For over a centimeter, 90 to 95%. Under a centimeter, closer to 25%, and one to two, just about everybody. Less than one centimeter, 75%. One to two, 100%. Melody? Over a centimeter, 90. For under a centimeter, I would say probably 75%. Frankie? I do see a lot of very young patients, and knowing that HER2 positivity is the same as having a positive lymph node in terms of outcome, almost all of my patients who are HER2 positive will get Herceptin, very rare exceptions.